All right, good morning. And we are uh, here at Jersey Day. We are representing our teams. Notice I didn't say we're excited to represent our teams, but we are representing our teams. And, and you know, I, as I watched last night, I got to say, like, I hate to see my team lose, but I watched last night. I kept wondering what that pregame speech must have been like. Like, Coach Mullen comes into the locker room. He looks at the teams. He's like, Felipe, Felipe, man, I need you to play quarterback. We're playing football right now. Felipe goes, but I thought you said we're playing Kentucky. Guys, put the basketballs down. I, <laughs> I, I want to give credit to Kentucky, though. Congratulations to all Kentucky. Uh, you got a win. It took 31 years to do that against Florida. 39 in the swamp, but congratulations. And next time, Florida will show up to play football when we have that game, maybe. I hope. Um, I want to encourage you. Here's the thing. As I, this is a little more... Uh, apropos, I guess. I like watching, walking in and seeing all the different team colors, but I'm grateful that we're all of one team, right? We're one team. And I wonder how often God and, you know, his, uh, his post-game speech in heaven looks at the armies, lines them up and goes, okay, look guys, I know we're not real proud of how they're acting right now, but they're still our team. So we need to like lift up that church. You know what I'm saying? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. So we're, we're there. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much that you love us. And God, today you desire to meet with us. And so we don't want to misconstrue for who it is we've gathered or what it is you desire to share. God, you are the one who's teaching. So I pray that you would teach us and have your way and your people would just be cherishing of your presence and ready to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. As we learned last week, uh, and for those of you who are new with us, let me just let you know where we've been. We've been in a series called Presence, and we're talking about how we as the people of God are to cherish the presence of God. And last week we looked at the fact that we are to be accountable for cherishing that presence and stop resisting our natural tendency to simply appease Him rather than worship Him rightfully. As the people of God, the presence of God is most at home with us, and thus we're accountable for ushering in that presence wherever wherever we go, wherever we enter. And someone who knew that was King David. And today he's going to be the focal point of our story. As, as God's appointed king of Israel and precursor to Jesus himself, David knew that the presence of God was to be cherished and present with his people. And so tens of years later from where we left off last week, and by the way, I want to commend, Brian did an amazing job last week encouraging us and bringing us forward in this story. Did he not? Excellent job. Excellent job. What he reminded us is that just a few weeks ago, we looked at how the people of God took for granted the presence of God. They saw the ark, which in the Old Testament represented the presence of God to the people of Israel, be captured by their enemies, taken to Felicia. Felicia sees their gods fall face down, and, uh, and wherever they moved it, uh, plagues would follow so that God could get their attention. But instead of, instead of turning and worshiping this one true God, they simply try to appease him. And last week, as I said, Brian reminds us of how they wanted it out of their presence. They send it back to the people of God with a guilt offering. And it's found on the outskirts of Israel, literally like right there on the border. And it's taken from there into a guy's house. And it's going to be there for 70 years, serving as this guy's functional coffee table. And so we pick up today, during the 40-year reign of David, Israel's second king. David, if you remember, wasn't, wasn't the bloodline, wasn't royal. He was a shepherd boy, uninvited to the very anointing 
of Samuel as the second king of Israel in 1 Samuel 16. And that um, he was the chosen man of God. It said that he had a heart like God's to replace Saul and Jonathan, the true, the true blood heir. This, so you have a king who has the picture of what everyone expects worldly-wise. And then you have David, God's chosen man. And it's really, it's really important that we think about that distinction. A man after God's own heart, a shepherd. You see, um, David gets a lot of credit, and he should, because we, we know him for one event mostly, that he would slay the giant, right? Amen? David and Goliath. Okay. So we know that he'd slay the giant, but he also would prepare a place for the Ark of the Covenant, and he'd be the one that would usher the presence of God back into the people. And many people want to give David credit for the Goliath story, which was huge. No pun intended. Which was huge. But I actually think maybe the largest thing that he accomplished during his reign and during his time biblically was the story we're picking up right here in 2 Samuel 6. And it was ushering the presence of God back into the people. I want to read just two verses for you from 2 Samuel 6. And we're going to have a lot of scripture today. I just want you to stay with me. I want to try to take it in bite sizes. It says, David again assembled all the fit young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal Judah. The ark bears the name of the name of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. Now, again, it's 70 years have passed between last week and this week in scripture. King Saul referenced going after the ark during his reign in 1 Samuel 14, but it was his predecessor, David, who would actually be chosen to do it. So I want you to imagine this picture. The people of God have functionally been without the presence of God now for tens of years. You have an entire generation that's been raised without a cognizant reference physically or um, in, in spiritually to the, to the ark of the covenant, which encompassed the presence for them. Meanwhile... It is in this guy's house on the very outskirts of town. It's right there within reach. It's right there within their country, and it's so close. But Israel is literally living without it, even though it had been returned by their enemy after it was captured. Within months, it's as if everyone forgot. It's as if all of Israel just, like, forgot. And for 70 years, it became like an afterthought, and so no one really knew the importance of it, the way to approach it, the, uh, the, how to cherish it. And so in their country land, it sits for decades now as the people of God have been living as if it doesn't exist. David decides not on my watch. David decides that it, it and by the way, isn't it good when a, a man of God will stand up and go, I know that no one else is going to agree with this, but stand up and just say or do what's right when it's opposed to everyone around them? Isn't it just refreshing to hear a, 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 say, like a sound voice say yes, right? How many of you have ever been called to say yes to God when you didn't know what you were saying yes to? Okay, so David says yes, and he says this is wrong. And he goes against the grain of everything that, that has been present in his generation. He's heard and realizes the importance of the ark and the covenant of the people and that it needs to be with his people. So he prepares a place for it. He's located it. He found out it's on the outskirts of town. He chooses the choice men of Israel, 30,000 young men to come with him. He gets instruments. He gets the priests together. And he's creating a parade for the return of the ark. Do you have this in your mind's eye? You get the picture. 
Everyone kind of understand where we're going. Okay, let me read on. It says that in 2 Samuel 6, verse 3, they set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which is on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, his sons, Abinadab, uh, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart and brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark, and David, David and the whole house of Israel, were dancing before the Lord with all kinds of fir wood, instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, sisterms, and cymbals. When they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah reached out to the ark because, to take hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. And then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and struck him dead on the spot for his irreverence. And he died there right next to the ark. I know that it, does, it doesn't make a ton of sense, but when I read this, I hear in the back of my mind, you might as well cue Sinatra, for I did it my way. Anyone know that song? I did it my way. That's our first point today. Here it is. When we do it our way, death continues. We don't bring death in. Death is all around us. The essence of the gospel is that we have moved because of Jesus' work from death to life. And the friends that you and I encounter on a regular basis who do not know Jesus are walking around in bondage to sin and death. They still are. And it wasn't that it was malintended. You see, David's intent was pure. His motive was pure. He wanted to have the ark with him. However, as much as he knew the ark of God needed to be with the people of God, and it had been gone far too long, and David is given a vision by God. Let's understand this. God gives him a vision for it to return, but it stops there. David develops his own plan. How many of you have ever been asked a question you didn't have the answer for? Hands up. How many of you have ever been asked a question that you didn't have the answer for, but you knew someone who did? But you keep your hand raised if you didn't go ask them for the answer. You just decided to determine on your own. I'm talking about. And so David, um, God gives this vision for the ark to come back. And David doesn't seek the accurate counsel for the execution thereof. So he, I, I say this all the time. Vision comes from Scripture, okay? And I believe that the execution of vision also will come from Scripture and its counsel if we'll seek it. But too often, we have a tendency to um, allow our ideas to lead us past execution and sound counsel. And he had a good idea. This cart that he had, you got to imagine like a covered wagon. And he comes out and puts the ark on that wagon. But see, the reason that Uzzah died that day was not because his heart was impure for ushering the presence back in or malintended. It's because he didn't know how to approach the Ark of the Covenant. There was an orderly way prescribed in Numbers and in Leviticus, and David ignored that. And even though he himself had never been raised with that answer, he knew the people who had that answer, and he didn't seek them. So someone died. When we do things our way, death continues. How many of you know that God is a God of grace and love, but he's also a God of order? And Uzzah was unknowingly trying to help and trying to catch the ark. He was trying to do his best effort. We don't know if the ark fell on him or just fell beside him, but we know this, that God made the point that when we do things out of order or we choose that 
that it's our idea. And you can't underestimate the power of a good idea, but if it goes in, in opposition to the way God has ordered things, death will continue. So God gives us this picture. This means that whether we like it or, or not, how many of you have ever been told something by God that you didn't like and so you had a choice to make? You could either choose to be obedient or you could dismiss it. Anybody been in the church long? Anyone ever been told something by God? Uh, you know, a lot of people don't like today to know what the Bible says about things. They're like, I, I don't like that, whatever, you know, that is. And I got to say, man, as I've walked with the Lord for a long time, there's a lot that I read in the, in the text. There's a lot that as the church we read in the text that offends our flesh. It's intended to. When it says, go the second mile, turn the other cheek, love your enemy, daily take up your cross and follow me, otherwise you cannot be my disciple. There's a lot in there that's really hard for your flesh. Why? Because that's supposed to fall away. Amen? It's supposed to die. And so here, if we keep doing things the way we like, and in a way that is palatable for our flesh... I want us to understand how important this is for us to grasp. Death continues. When we allow what God has said to go through a filter that matches our justification for how we think things should go circumstantially, we, we have willingly chosen to live opposed to what Christ wants. And we're to live as Christ and to die, it says, is gain because we'll be in his presence. See, it's still all about presence. Amen? So let me read on. It says in uh, 2 Samuel 6, verse 8. Oh, sorry. It says, David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. So he named that place Outburst Against Uzzah, as it is today. And David feared the Lord that, the, that day and said, this is a key question, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he's not willing to bring the ark of the Lord to the sea of David. Instead, he diverted it into the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained in the house for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his whole family. Okay, next point. We do it God's way, and people live. There was a clear order that he was asked to follow when approaching God and ushering in his presence. And that question that I just asked was key. He should have done it the first time, but how many of you recognize that sometimes we learn from our mistakes? Most times they're the best teacher. And so David decides we're going to put a pause on this. It's going to go into Obed-Edom's house for three months, and the blessings are going to come on Obed-Edom because the presence of God is right there. And in the meantime, David goes, how can the ark come to me? I don't understand. And instead of trying to figure that out for himself, he goes to the person or the people that have the right answer. He goes to the priest who knew all along exactly how the ark should move and come to them. So I'm going to jump over to another passage, a synoptic gospel. But it's, it's a synoptic passage. It's covering the same story, much like the gospels do. But I want us to recognize that David needed to seek the counsel of the anointed. First, Samuel, or First Chronicles 15, it says, David built houses for himself in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. 
Then David said, No one but the Levites can carry the ark of God because the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and minister before them forever. I'm going to jump ahead because there's a whole lot of names right there. We're just going to pass lineage and go here. In verse 11, David summoned the priests of Zadok, the Abiathar, the Levites of Uriel, Isaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Abinadab. You thought I jumped over some names, right? He says to them, you're the heads of the Levite families. You and your relatives consecrate yourselves and prepare yourselves so that you may bring the ark of the Lord of Israel to its place that I've prepared for it. For the Lord our God burst out in anger against us because you Levites were not with us the first time. For we didn't inquire of him of the proper procedures. How many of you think if God's going to give vision, he's going to give a proper way to execute it? And we have to continue to seek his face to find it. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of God of Israel. Then the Levites carried the ark of God by, way of, by the way of Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord on their shoulders with poles. Now here's the kicker. And we'll go back to 2 Samuel in a second. Here's the kicker. You see... He builds this cart and says, we're going to put this thing on a cart and all mountain, we're going to have this big parade. But he never inquired of the priests who taught him, no, the ark of the Lord is this big box, it's gold, it's ornate, and on its side it has rings. Those rings were a place where poles had to go through. And these poles, the moment it was captured, have been in an ornate back closet somewhere because they had no use for it. The ark wasn't in their presence. For 70 years, they've just been collecting dust. And he said, no one can approach the ark except for the Levite priest. It's the, it's the only tribe that doesn't really have a home because they intercede as priests between God and man. And so the Levites must consecrate themselves and they're the only ones who are allowed to carry the ark. And the only way that it can be carried is by the poles above the shoulder. There was a precise and exact people there was an exact and precise process, an exact and, and, and a specific way that things were to be carried out when it came to approaching God's presence and ushering it in. See, had David pursued this in advance, no one would have died. But God is orderly. And, and here's the thing. God had prescribed this through Exodus, Numbers, num, uh, through, and you can see all the passages no, uh, Exodus 25, Numbers 3, Numbers 4, and Numbers 7. I encourage you to go back and read that for yourself. But I want to make this point to us today. This is why the disciplines of Scripture study, memorization, and listening prayer are so vital for us flourishing in our life in Christ. It's not for legalism's sake. Let me say that again. It's not for legalism's sake. How are you ever to discern what God desires for you or for our church if we never spend time with Him? We never spend time devoted to memorize and meditate on what His Scripture says and listen to what His Spirit says within us to give affirmation or check against what we might be thinking. Anyone ever thought to move in a certain direction, but you got that convicting spirit within and said, I don't feel right about this. When we ignore that as the people of God, we're doing like the people of God, and we're telling Him, your presence isn't important to us. But when we do things God's way, people live. And life comes forth in the church, and hope and love come forth in the church the way God intended it, even back here with Israel. Now, I want to read on um, in 2 Samuel 6. Here's what happens as they're bringing the ark out of Obed-Edom's house. It says, It was reported to King David that the Lord had blessed Obed-Edom's house and all the belongings 
all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went up and had the ark of God brought out of Obedim's house to the city of David rejoicing. And when those carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted calf. David was dancing with all his might before the Lord wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the ram's horn. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Saul's daughter, Michael, looked down from the window, saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and despised him in her heart. Let's stop here. I've got to unpack this. So here's what happens. They have the right people. They have the specific tools. They have the specific way that it should be carried. And as they begin to usher it in a second time, because they lost in the first, they, they learned and lost in the first time, David allows them to go in six steps, six paces in a, in a processional as it's coming in. And then he stops. He says, stop the whole thing. He goes, right here, we need to build an altar unto God. Why? Because God has allowed us to live in his presence when we've been without it for 70 years for just six steps. God has allowed us to live in his presence. No one has died for six steps. Now, it is said that many commentators agree, and if you walk this road from Obed-Edom's house back to Jerusalem, the city of David today, you may find altars or remnants, uh, rich, uh, from, what is it, ruins. That's the word I'm looking for. Sorry. Ruins of old, tore-down altars all the way from his house to Jerusalem because every six steps, David stopped them and gave sacrifice, built an altar, and said, thank you, God, for allowing us to live in your presence six more steps. Wow. What if the church of God got up today and recognized, was so cognizant of the fact that to live is Christ, to die is gain, that God is the one who still puts breath in us. What would happen if the people of God would pause every six breaths and go, God, thank you for breath. Did I use the last six for your glory, for your honor? Did I recognize intentionally what you've done in giving me six breaths. Or think about it. How many of you, breathing is an afterthought. And so since this morning, you've gotten up. How many of you, every breath you've taken this morning has been as worship unto the Lord? And how many would say, I've taken breath for granted a little bit. If to live as Christ and to die as gain, my breath has not been used as God places it in my lungs and can take it like that. It has not been used for his glory as it should. Amen? I would say, I would dare say today, so often, we're not cognizant of what the Lord is doing. It's not six breaths. I want us to get there. I would hope that we would get there. Like David said, six paces, six steps. How many of us have gone six months without recognizing what God is doing? How many of us have, are a little better, we've gone six weeks and we turn before we turn it on to the Lord, but that's better than six months, right? How many of us go, you know, I'm, I'm on the day track. It's been a week, but I'm going to pause here because I'm at church. And six days ago, I heard from him, but I'm going to pause here and come back. And now I'm going to recognize what the Lord is doing every six days. You see, when you start with six breaths, it doesn't matter how you may progressively walk it down. It doesn't seem like it's cognizant enough. It doesn't seem like we're dialed in enough. And here, 
we get ourselves into trouble, church, when we look and go, okay, look, I know that I'm not doing it every six days, but I'm not that guy who never turns. It's been six years since he turned and recognized what God is doing. At least I'm not her. It's still been six months for her since she turned and gave honor to the Lord to live as Christ desires. Amen? Anyone believe we get in trouble when we compare ourselves to the, the team, other members of the same team? Because God's standard is so high, no one could achieve it. It was only the work of Jesus who could do it. And here's the thing. God had a specific way, a specific player, a specific, a specific process by which we can come into to contact with him and have relationship with him. In John 14, 6, it says that no one can come to the Father except through him. Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and I am the life. And no one has hope except by me. So it doesn't matter how many Hail Marys we, well, not throw, what was the prayer thing? The beads we pray? It doesn't matter how many legalistic steps we might take to, you know, scratch the, the check on the box of what we should do and what we shouldn't do. It's not our earning it. But it is about our effort. And how many of us, our relationships, listen, I want you to evaluate. The relationships around you are dying because your effort is terrible. And we can't expect our relationship with the Lord to flourish if our effort, the church's effort, is terrible. Amen? Every six steps, David paused and stopped them, and it says that they prayed. And they gave honor because God had an orderly way about doing things. And when they do, people live. And here's the point. They wanted to thank God for living just six steps, six breaths in his presence. Point three. When we do things God's way, we identify with our true self. The undignified identity that God has for you and I, that, created, uh, that he created us in, his very image before the foundation of the world. We become our truest picture of ourselves. It says that Michael, his wife, the daughter of Saul, despised him for his processional. Do you know why? A lot of people misinterpret this and they say that David danced wildly and naked before the Lord. That's not what happened in this story. It says though that David, instead of wearing all of his kingly garb and his regalia, he didn't stand and signify or identify himself alone from everyone else as the king who would usher in after 70 years the presence of God he took no credit for it it says he put aside his royal garments he put on the linen ephod which is what the priests would wear when they prepared themselves as the listen shepherds of Israel to bring the ark before them they wore a ceremonial linen ephod and he decided to put on one of those and then it says that they would dance a ceremonial dance it was very orderly the steps were intentional as they ushered in in this parade that you see in in David's existence right here there was a, a specific orderly dance the priests would dance and David joins them so what does Michael despise she knows he didn't deserve to be king. She knows that her brother was passed over. She knows that he is the 
the anointed king of Israel, but he doesn't set himself apart and take any honor or glory in this. In fact, he's almost unrecognizable as he joins the priests in this dance and this linen ephod. And to give you a picture, like how many of you have ever seen like uh, the whirling dervishes? It's an Islamic sect. They, they wear like, they wear this linen uh, outfit and they kind of spin like this. And, and in their mindset, it's to spin as if they're on the solar system. Acts 17 says, in him, we live, move, and have our being. That's the only thing that I can contemporarily tell you as a visual example of what is happening in this day right here with the priests of Israel. It's an orderly dance. It's not wild. They're wearing a specific dress. And David says, look, I'm less likely the earthly king, and I'm more the eternal shepherd. And I'm just going to move this thing from a me thing to a we thing. And so Michael despises him because he is making himself unrecognizable and he's joining the team instead of making it about himself, which I dig. I think that's incredibly humble. I think it's amazing. I think that it's incredibly difficult to do. Hear me? How many of you are selfish? Ask your spouse. How many of you find it really difficult to do what God desires, specifically when those who are closest to you, like your spouse, disagree? How many of you would find it really hard to step out and be obedient to what God says, even though you've had affirmation after affirmation in the scriptures, in your spirit, counsel of those who knew when you didn't know, and you could still walk out and be obedient and say yes without knowing what saying yes to, even if your spouse despises you for it? Who could do it? See, this is what we're talking about. See, David was not worried about removing his kingly robe. What he was more concerned about, it says, as he came into his house to bless his, his household after blessing Israel with the presence, he shows up, it says, in his house, and she challenges him sarcastically. And he says, I'll become even more undignified than this. How does a man give a response like that unless that man is sure and fitted and feels strong because he's the inner grip of heaven now? Hello? That he is strengthened by the power of God's spirit more so than he is the circumstances surrounding him. Even when his wife looks at him and she despises him and sarcastically puts him down, he still says, I know you disagree, but I know for a fact this is right. And I will continue to do what the Lord desires. Praise be to him. And I hope you'll get on board. It doesn't ever say she got on board. In fact, it says because she did this, God closed her womb and she never bore children. It says he he closed her womb and she never bore children because, because she avidly went against David humbly walking with the Lord. When you follow the Lord, not everyone's always going to agree. We hope that they would, but they won't always. But when we do things the way God ordered and designed. We do it his way, not our own. We remove our flesh. We humbly walk as his. And we do it in the identity that he really fit for us eternally, not not the things that have earthly kind of identified us. People live. Hope and love goes forth from our life. The gospel expands. But when the church takes his presence for granted and they don't do these very things that David has shown us, 
Death continues. And we, we really don't quite live up to that title, the Church of Jesus who offers hope to the world. God closed Michael's womb as a direct lesson for standing in opposition to God's way. We saw Eli stand directly in opposition to God's way, and God took him out and began to go around him by anointing Samuel. Can I ask you a really difficult question as we close this? How many of you God is having to go around you? How many of us are standing in our pride in opposition to what God is doing, and God has now just chosen to go around us because we are functionally in the way? David didn't approach going after the ark as malintended or impure, but he did it, he did it ignorantly, though. He, he knew the people had the right answer. He just chose, in, in his lack of like concern, to do it his way, and people died. Guys, who are you living for? Who are we living for? Are we willing to listen to God and please him above all else? even those closest to us who might stand in opposition to him. That's a, that's a big boy and big girl decision. That's, that's an adult decision. That's not for the kids. Are we living our lives in such a way that every six steps there's a sacrifice, an altar, a, an Ebenezer put down in our lives that says, God, I thank you for the last six breaths because... Without you, I don't have breath, so my breath shall be used for you. Are we thinking about living with God every six steps, every six breaths? Are we thinking about Christ that often? Or, here's the real kicker, are we thinking about ourselves? You don't have to be trained to think about yourself. Hello? Anyone know that? I don't. I don't have to be trained to think about myself. I have a way. The question is, are we going to do things his way so that people can live? Or are we going to do things our way and we'll let death continue? This morning, Father, I thank you that you loved your people enough to have a way. You loved us enough to send your son and to take the sacrifice that we deserved so that we could actually be in relationship with you. And if we will follow his example, where we'll humbly lay ourselves down and say it's your way over my own. I don't want to take credit for anything. I humbly just am grateful for your presence and I want to walk every six breaths in it. This morning, God, be God of my life and forgive me for where I take your throne. This morning, whether it be at this altar or in your seat or at the Lord's table, can we just thank Jesus for the sacrifice that he made to bring us to himself? Can we take God at his word and recognize that it's only by Jesus that we have life? And this morning, it's only by Jesus that we're going to walk out of here looking more like him. So as Jesus searches this crowd and walks and comes to you face to face, he's not, let's, let's imagine that he loved you so much he was just concerned about you right now. And he wants to say something to you. He wants your response. Only you know. But what does he want from you? 
What is standing in the way of you living completely obedient to him today? And what are you to put down this morning to not carry out of here so that you look more like him when you leave than today, maybe when we walked in? Jesus, have your way, I ask in your name.